But um, today we're going to get into a passage in Genesis 22, and I'd like to um, ask if, if you do a hard copy, please open up your hard copies. If you're a digital person, I wonder if, if it's projected, that's great. If it's not, not a big deal. But I'm going to read 22 through uh, verse 1 through 18, and if you guys could follow along and gals could follow along. Thank you. All right, the word of God reads, And after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his, young, to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on, his, on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him, from the heavens, and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am, and he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have, you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for being who you are. Thank you for being um, very true, the God of the universe, the God who holds all things in the palm of, of your hands. Uh, you sustain everything, Lord. You are God of this universe, and yet you've set your love upon many of us in a very personal and intimate way, and for that we are so grateful. Lord, as we... Um, delve into the drama, so to speak, of the Bible, uh, as we engage and as we learn from this um, even shocking, seemingly shocking text, help us to be humble. Help us, Lord, to, um, to acknowledge that you are wise and you are, um, that you are God, and help us to learn not only from the life of Abraham, but to help us to learn from your character and your goodness. Uh, now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts here together today be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our great redeemer. Amen. All right. Um, 
I have three points that I want to use to help us better understand the text um, and, um, and understanding the text, I hope and I pray, will deepen your love for the Lord, uh, for the things of God and for one another and for those who are in need of uh, the gospel hope that you have. Uh, and I think they're right up there. The God who perplexes, the God who provides, the God who points forward and back. Um, Please nod your heads in agreement or shake your heads in disagreement. Do you feel like life is a, just a series of tests? Yes? No? It kind of is true, I think, uh, for those of you who um, had parents who, when you were in your mom's belly, took, what, a pregnancy test to see if they were expecting. Um, it all begins with a test even before you actually made it out of the womb, and it's all downhill from there because, again, life is just a series of one test after another test after another test. Sometimes the tests are super duper easy. Sometimes they're really hard and difficult and even perplexing. Sometimes you think that tests are unfair. I felt the SAT, the Scholastic Aptitude Test, was unfair back during my high school days. I know a lot of schools are, opt are making it optional and that's been stirring some controversy. I'm not gonna get into that right now, but I thought it was very, very uh, strange and I thought the system was rigged that, that your entrance into this school or that school that you'd end up paying thousands of dollars, gobs of money to was, was you know, not totally, but entirely, but you know, based upon the results of this one exam, the SAT, and so, um, I wanted to do well, even though I, th I thought the system was rigged, so I asked my parents, hey, you know, can you guys send me to one of these prep schools, um, SAT prep courses? And I didn't grow up with a silver spoon in you know, my mouth. Uh, my dad was a church planter and a pastor, and so um, my mom was always working overtime, and you know, we were, we were, God was providing, but we didn't have the means to afford you know, these after-school academies that some families just pursue like, like there's no tomorrow. <laughs> But um, they sent me to Stanley Kaplan, 12-week course, and uh, being the underachiever that I was, uh, and sometimes still struggle to not be, uh, I went to the first class, skipped the next 10, and then went to the last class. <laughs> I essentially squandered um, my parents' um, hard-earned resources and monies. And um, the first class was the diagnostic text, and uh, I did okay, um, but um, I, I kind of got cocky, and I just hung out with my friends. My parents would drop me off, or my friends' parents would drop us off, and then we'd duck into the, the front entrance, the foyer, and then just as soon as they drove away, we'd just do our thing. And the last class was a party, so who doesn't want to go to parties? <laughs> so that's what I did, and I ended up just continuing to be perplexed by this SAT exam because um, I wasn't really helped by the non-attendance at this academy. Um, the reason why I share that um, is because um, Abraham was perplexed by what he was experience in this, experiencing in this um, passage. Uh, I'm going to be very honest with you from the get-go that people look at a passage like this, whether they are in Christ or, you know, uh, outside of just a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, and um, even Christians, they often come away with very kind of critical readings of this text. They they think and they believe that, hey, you know what, maybe our God is no different from the pagan deities like Molech, for instance, who not only requires um, blood sacrifice, burnt offering, because um, that's what it amounts to, uh, to appease their wrath, but even, you know, child sacrifice. I mean, is God no different? Because um, that's what it seems, even from what Juan just read a second ago, that God is calling Abraham to do. But Moses, the author of this um, 
you know, this book uh, tells us very, something very important in the very first verse that we need to grab hold of and latch on to see that God was up to something in Abraham's life. He was up to something in Abraham's life. And that, that something is, is he was testing Abraham. And understanding this and not missing this clues us into something that, um, something deeper that will help us not completely understand the complexities of God's sovereignty and wisdom, but, which often perplex us, but get us to a place to see that the mysteries of God's purposes shouldn't scare us away or frighten us away from worshiping him and loving him even and following him. We can't miss that off the bat because if we do, we'll just get thrown by all the critics who say God is no different from Moloch, which is totally just not true. After these things, God tested Abraham. And it was a test that I would say perplexed Abraham and Sarah deeply. What was God up to? Well, first of all, before we get into this test, this particular test, I just want to make it clear that God was testing Abraham a lot, often in his life. Maybe some of you are feeling that vibe and, and, and agreeing, yeah, I, I can empathize because God seems to be testing me right now, like, and God has tested me in the past. Well, this was not Abram's, Abraham's first test. Back in Genesis 12, when God called Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, 40 years before, removed from this Genesis 22 account, Abraham, then called Abram, was called by God to do something extremely radical and almost nonsensical. God said, go. He called him out. Out of where? Out of his home, out of his land, out of his immediate family and perhaps extended family and whatever relationships he had uh, in Ur, right? That was where he was from. And he says, he just says, go. Go where? Go to the land that I will show you. That's pretty radical stuff that God is, was calling him to, and it was a test to see Abraham's response. Think about that. Leave everything, job security, personal identity, heritage, you know, relationships, and go to this unformed pie-in-the-sky place that I will show you someday, some way. What did Abraham do? That to, you know, in that first test, he passed it with flying colors. <laughs> he passed it with flying colors. He left everything to go to fo- in, in following the, the God of, you know, he, he would be the God of Abraham eventually, the God of the Israelites, but he would become the God of the nations through Father Abraham, right? Some of you perhaps can empathize with this, but most of you probably can't. I don't know where you're from. I saw, you know, Mississippi State back there, right? Um, I'm more of a Baylor guy. That's where my daughter went for her, her freshman year of college. Um, but, um, like, if you've come from elsewhere and you've migrated into New York City and, you know, you've, you're, you're now a New Yorker, however long that's been the case, you, I bet you came, I know some of us, there, there are the, you know, the, the, that, that small crowd of, you know, people who just got sucked into wanderlust and just wanted to sow their seeds of, you know, just, um, um, you know, just, just going out there and, and, and experiencing the city without having all these things in place. But I would bet that most of you had a job offer. 
and that brought you into the city. Most of you had a, you know, um, an entrance into one of the, to St. John's University. I know Param, um, you know, played soccer at St. John's, I believe, right, or something like that. You had that graduate school admission that brought you into the city. You had and you did what you could to, to make sure that you had a place to live, that you had roommates to share that ridiculous rent with, right? You had all their ducks in a row and things settled so that things wouldn't be so unformed and amorphous, right? Abraham didn't have any of these things when he left Ur of the Chaldees. And so he actually aced that Genesis 12 exam. But this test involving Isaac, I'm going to say it was like next-level perplexing. And I would even say gut-wrenching perplexing. And it almost seems like God takes it way too far. But let's dig a little deeper. Let's learn a little bit more about Abraham. Up to this point in Genesis 22, um, if you were to read from 12 when he was called till now, you would learn that he was called, he, he was, God made a covenant with him back in Genesis 15. Like this elaborate display of getting animals, cutting them in half, and then God alone walking through that, 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 you know, that, that, that walkway with the animals, right? Uh, God was cutting a covenant with Abraham on his terms, God's terms. It's an incredible, picturesque, powerful account, but that's when God tells Abraham that you're going to have descendants that outnumber the sands on the seashore and the stars in the sky. But the problem was Abraham didn't have any children. He didn't have any progeny. So, so God tells Abram that he's going to have a son and that he's to name his son Isaac. So some years go by. I don't know how many precisely, but years go by, and there's no promised son. And Abraham, Abram and, 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 and Sarah's wife, they were old and pretty barren. And all their attempts to conceive were uh, unsuccessful. They they, um, they, they, they try to circumvent God's plan and God's timing, which we'll get to later, but it gets to the place where um, they, Sarah, you know, at the ripe age of 100 years, gives birth to Isaac, and they name him Isaac, and his name literally means he laughs. Why? Because when God told Abraham that he was going to have a son, that Sarah would conceive, be with child, he laughed. And when Sarah heard in a conversation between God and Abraham that that was going to happen, she laughed, so he was appropriately named, he laughs, Isaac. Fast forward 15 years or so, and here we are in Genesis 22. Life is, I would say, nice for them and and very ideal. I'm I'm not going to say it's the perfect life, but they're blessed with their miracle child, and from all that we can gather, they're in the land of Canaan, and after many years of journeying, and uh, I believe Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and their, you know, their kinsmen and kinswomen, they have achieved what I believe to be was the precursor of the American dream, except it was the Canaanite dream, right? They, they achieved this kind of life, and they're, they're fine. But then God brings this test, this perplexing test. And in verse 1, second half of verse 1, God calls him again, just like he did in, in chapter 12, and he says, Abraham, Abraham says, here I am. Abraham once again enthusiastically is ready to respond, respond in obedience, despite not knowing what he's getting himself into, just like in Genesis 12. 
here's where perplexing gets real, real heavy. And the commentators tell us, the, South, the Old Testament scholars tell us that the language in the original Hebrew at this point in the, in the text slows down dramatically, dramatically. For the effect, but also because it was just a heavy moment in, in Abraham's life and in, you know, biblical history. Um, and, and verse 2, the commentators tell us, um, it's... It slows down so much that it should almost be read with a period after each word, right? You guys know, have you ever seen that in texts, right? Um, I, I got into a conflict. Um, my wife and I, we get into conflicts, and it's usually I'm the bad guy, right? I'm the guy who, who causes the conflicts um, for the majority of the time. Uh, I need to repent. I need to constantly be repenting. And I remember getting into this really bad conflict, and um, I realized my error, and I, I, I recall... I was, um, I was at work, and I was texting her. I was saying, I- I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. Um, I need to grow. I'm getting spiritual. Please pray for me. And then, you know, I ended it with, you know, please forgive me. I, I love you. I really love you. And then, like, 10 minutes later, I got a response. Um, I, period, don't, period, care, period, <laughs> okay? It's that kind of dramatic effect that's going on in this text with Abraham when God says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. It is heavy. It is perplexing. It is confounding. It was so intense that, again, Moses, the author, he doesn't hold back in his literary devices, like repetition. You know how many times he says, your son? In these 18 verses, 10 times, your son, your son, your son, your son Isaac, your only son, your only son, your only son Isaac. This call to sacrifice Isaac was next level intensity. And that's why, naturally, it, it, it was perplexing and, and, and uh, perhaps disappointing and, and confounding and upsetting for this this couple who waited all these years to have this miracle child, Isaac, only to hear God at this point shock them with sacrificing at Moriah. I mean, they must have been thinking, Lord, all our hopes, all our affections, all our dreams, uh, and we're old, right? Uh, it's, it's all wrapped up here in Isaac. But not only that, what about your promises? What about your covenant? You said, you, you, renamed, uh, you renamed us, and Abraham, my husband, went from exalted father to father of many nations. What about all that stuff? You're, he, he's going to be the father of the nation of, of Israel but, and beyond, right? You, you know, the, the Muslims call Abraham father as well. What is happening? Like, it went against not only their affections and emotions, but it went, it went against logic. It was irrational what God was calling them, him, to do. And so I wouldn't blame them if they were thinking God is just being capricious. He's, you know, acting and, and decreeing on a whim. And, you know, maybe he's just like flexing his sovereignty muscle. God is all-powerful, and he wants to show us that he's all-powerful. And so he's flexing before us. How could he be contradicting his moral nature, opposing promises? Let's move on, because there's something more to this. Abraham, how does he respond? 
after he hears that this is a call to sacrifice his son on Moriah, what does he do? He gets up early in the morning. Any morning people here? If you're a morning person, <laughs> then it's natural, right? It's, it's easy, right? Regardless, he gets up early in the morning, saddles his donkey, he makes all the, the preparation, brings two young men with him, cuts the wood for the burnt offering, and he starts on this three-day journey. That's Abraham's response. I don't know how you raise your kids, but we raised our kids, and I don't think this is always true, but for the most part, especially when they're young, it is. Delayed obedience is disobedience, right? We don't see any delay in obedience here on Abraham's part. We don't see any of it all. We don't see him trying to figure out how can I, how can I, can I, can I, you know, just negotiate with God and, and help him to see that this is not the way forward. You know, what, there, there, there was just obedience, obedience. He prepares with diligence without any complaint. Do you wonder how he was able to do this? You know, the text reveals to us what he was going to do, right? In verse 5, the text reveals to us what was on, what was going on in Abraham's mind as he's responding to God in obedience, right? What does he say to the two young men that he leaves to further um, the, the trip to Moriah? He says, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. I don't know if you see it, but Abraham is convinced that he's coming back with Isaac. He's convinced that he's coming back with Isaac, and um, we can look at the Hebrews 12 or the Hebrews 11 passage that gives us an inkling, and scholars also agree, that Abraham was perhaps thinking that he was going to sacrifice Isaac in obedience to God, but that God was going to raise him to life, and so he would return. Amazing, right? This is what is fueling his obedience, but the second reason, and this is really, really cool, right? And this is where I can say that, man, Abraham is, is passing this test with flying marks, right? He's acing this test. He's going there to worship, right? His act of sacrifice that he's responding in obedience to God to is an act of worship. I and the boy will go over there and worship, worship. It was devotion and worship to Yahweh. In this impossible situation where he's experiencing this probably sleepless, you know, I, I'm sure there was turmoil going on in his mind and heart, and, you know, he was cycling through emotions. Nevertheless, he knows that he's going to worship. And as he's inching his way closer to the place where he'll be offering up Isaac for sacrifice, he is ready to worship, and he communicates to these young men that he's going to worship. You know, we all worship, and there often is a very fine line between worship and idolatry, right? Idolatry actually is worship, but it's the worship of false gods. That's idolatry. It's, 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 idolatry is worship, but it's worshiping the false gods. There was not any, at least 
from what we're hearing and from what we're from the account, there wasn't Abraham wasn't steeped in idolatry. I know we, we don't have pure motives, but from what we're seeing, Abraham was going to worship God through this sacrifice. Through this sacrifice. But guess what? There was plenty of idolatry in Abraham's life in his past. I didn't get into it and I won't get into much, but as Abraham and Isaac were Abraham and Sarah were waiting for Isaac, they grew impatient. And so they devised, they, they hatched this plan to, to, to hasten <laughs> this miraculous child. And Sarah had a plan to have Abraham sleep with her maidservant, Hagar, who would hopefully conceive, and boom, there, you'd have your promised child. They did this and pursued their plan and their path and their timeline because they were steeped in idolatry, right? There were other instances where Abraham, on this journey uh, to Canaan, the unformed, amorphous, promised land, so to speak, that God called them to, right? There were times when they, when they faced dangers and uh, setbacks and, and heartache, and there was a couple occasions where he basically pimped out his wife to save his own skin. So Genesis 12, success, aced it. Genesis 22, success, aced it. But in other places, in Genesis 17 and wherever else you read of his account, he failed, and he failed miserably. He failed, and he failed miserably. But in this case, he did, fair, he did pretty well, right? Now, some of you might be wondering, um, you know the outcome of the story, but you might be wondering why. You might be, you know, wondering why, why did God put Abraham through such an ordeal to begin with? Why couldn't he have just given him and Sarah the promised Isaac sooner than later? Why couldn't he have just like plopped them down in Canaan? Because God is not about just giving us things or putting us in places. God is about changing us and making us into a people, a person, his child. God is about making us more like himself in his imago dei, the image of God that was shattered because of the fall. And so through the wandering into Canaan and through the years of waiting for Isaac, God wasn't just waiting, you know, he wasn't just withholding something or some place. He was actually trying to create someone in Abraham. And so that's, that's what he was doing. And we see it and we understand it living 3,000 years removed from this account, but Abraham didn't get it, and yet he still was a man of faith in spite of all the perplexity that was involved. That leads us to our second point. The God who provides. The God who perplexes, the God who provides. The second and third point go much more quickly than, well, more quickly. I wouldn't say much more. I'm going to kind of reread some of the passages. Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father... And he said, here I am, my son. Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. I know I just recently described some of the accounts where Abraham failed badly. I mean, he just missed the mark, right? That's what sin is, missing the mark, right? It's, you know, self-worship, 
self-idolatry rather than worshiping the one true God. But I hope I also commended Abraham's faith because Abraham is commended and honored and spoken of in Hebrews 11 as one of the heroes of the faith. In spite of all my commendation, in spite of just, you know, just showing you how he aced this, this deep, perplexing you know, um, test that God brought to him, a test that, you know, um, that James, the half-brother Jesus, tells us testing in our lives produces steadfast, steadfastness, right? It produces endurance. So it's not a bad thing, and it's brought to us by God so that he might make us more into his own image, the image of Jesus Christ. But I will also say that I don't think it was the strength of Abraham's faith that gave him the wherewithal, that gave him the resolve and the determination and the strength to get up early that morning, to have that talk with Sarah, to make all the preparation for the burnt offering, to tell his son, hey, come on, you're coming to get his son to the place where his son actually willingly, because we don't read of a struggle, and Isaac was not some little 10-year-old, 9-year-old boy. He was probably well into his teenage years, is what the Bible um, scholars tell us. How was he able to do all these things, journey three days up to the top of the mount, and then get that, that knife raised up to strike his son, Isaac, for sacrifice. How was he able to do this? He was a man of great faith. He was a man who was obedient to the call of God in his life in the past. There was provenness. There was failure, but there was also provenness. I think it's in the text. It's what I just read. He knew that God would provide. And he tells his son, and he tells the other two men who were there as well, I'm sure, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. He had no idea what that was going to look like. He had no idea when that was going to take place. He's still in that lane of obediently, diligently following hard after God and being obedient to that call to sacrifice his son to the point where, you know what? The sacrifice actually may not have happened in real time. It, re- it didn't play out, but in his heart, right? Which is where worship flows. It, it happened in his heart. It really did. It was a sacrifice of worship and praise unto God. What I believe got Abraham to this place of being able to just be faithful to God's call was just him rehearsing rehearsing to himself the promises of God, the covenant that God had made to him, rehearsing to himself the character, the the loving kindness of this God who brought him out of his land, his people, his heritage, brought him to Canaan, and it was now calling him to faithfully worship him through the sacrifice of his miracle boy, Isaac. How do we know that? that it wasn't the strength of Abraham's faith, that it wasn't the strength of his character that got him to this place? How do we know that it was the strength of God's faithfulness, the strength of God's 
character, the strong tower. I love that, you know, like, like a strong tower. God is like a strong tower. It was that kind of faithfulness and steadfast loving kindness that God had for Abraham that gave him the strength to make it through this test. Because as I shared with you, at times Abraham, his faith was, was, was meek and weak and feeble and faltering. But here in this passage, we see that by the grace of God, Abraham knew that God would provide. And God does provide. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me, right? He sees the ram caught in the thicket, and he offers up that ram as a burnt offering worship instead of his son, Isaac. This is the clincher for me, that, that I know that it wasn't Abraham's strength and it wasn't Abraham's faith, but God's faith and God's character that brought him through. What does Abraham in verse 14 name the place? This is really cool. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. You know what he calls that place? Jehovah Jireh. Jehovah Jireh. That's what he calls it. Because God did in fact provide in real time. Abraham, just a few moments earlier in verse 8, was looking forward to God providing. He didn't know how, he didn't know when, but he had faith because of God's character, because who God was, and because of his promises, he was able to call that place the Lord will provide. He didn't call it Abraham passed this test. He didn't call it, um, you know, Abraham's, you know, moment of decisive faith or whatever you want to call it. He called it the Lord will provide. I know that I, I have a hunch that so many of you have been in this place where you were hoping, you were believing, you were wanting God to provide. You're facing a decision or a circumstance or a situation in life that was just perplexing. You didn't have the answers. Your friends couldn't provide you with the answers, or they try, you know, even when they tried to. You were stuck between a rock and a hard place So about this relationship. God, you're calling me to leave this person that loves me because, you know, according to your word, we are unequally yoked? Are you serious? This person has vowed to, like, love me through thick and thin, you know, like he or she has said the vows before we even actually have said the vows. You want me to leave that person because of, you know, this black and white truth word that you have for me? Lord, you want me to, to move from my current job to, to that position, even though this salary is just that much more lucrative for me? You, like, I can't understand why you would have me do that, but I guess if this is your call for me to be a more effective witness, to be able to serve my family better, to serve my church better, to serve the loss better, whatever it might be, Lord, I'm just going to trust your character and your promises, and I'm going to obey. You see, that's, I believe, what Abraham experienced here. 
the promises, a rehearsing of the promises of God in his life. On his own, perhaps with Isaac. I mean, who knows what they were doing on that journey? Man, I just can't even imagine. Are, are you rehearsing the truths and the promises and the character of God in your life right now, regardless of what you're facing? You know, um, we have five kids, but uh, our second daughter, we believe, is with the Lord. Um, Naomi Ruth was um, nine months old when she, just like that, you know, uh, life is a mist, and uh, her passing proved to be very misty, <laughs> pun intended, because we were just all over the place in emotions. And, uh, but she, was, she caught a fever, and then three days later, she was brain dead, beyond brain dead. It was like Twilight Zone, right? And um, she was as healthy as can be. She was off the charts, you know, like growth. And, and she, for those of you who are parents, especially if, if, that, if you're in that season where, you know, you've got a young one, when your babies eat well and sleep well and poop and pee well, you're blessed, right? She was all that. Madeline, my number one, who was a couple years older than her, she was a problem child. <laughs> she gave my wife, Diane, a hard time. Naomi was like, per- never cried, always ate. I mean, just Naomi, Ruth. We loved her. God chose to take her, and he just squashed any of the parents aren't supposed to bury their children nonsense that this world talks about. That, 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 does, that flies in the face of a broken world that we live in, right? So just get that out of your minds, because that's not truth. We went through, you know, kind of like the, the, the dazed <laughs> phase, and then, you know, the, 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 the mourning grieving phase, and then the anger phase, and then the confusion phase, and then the fighting with your spouse phase, and, you know, like the fearful phase, and like the, the, the lazy phase. It's like, if you read a book called the uh, a Grief Observed by C.S. Lewis. He talks about all the different kind of ways that you experience grief, and people experience it different ways and different way, you know, different ways and with different waves. And we were there, and, and I, I swear to you, I cursed God like there was no tomorrow. Like, I shook my little fist at him and gave him, you know, the proverbial, proverbial you, know, um, you know, middle finger sign, uh, left and right. And, I, and then at other times, I just could do nothing but just fall down flat on my face and, believe it or not, worship him and cry out to him. And it was his grace and his mercy that got us to the place where, as she passed in that ICU, pediatric ICU room, we had um, my family, some extended family, and my church family. Worshiping. I'm not likening myself to Father Abraham or anything like that, but it was only because I was remembering the promises of God and his love for me, my wife, my family. And I didn't have all the answers, right? If I had all the answers and if I could explain to you everything of why she passed, um, the doctors wanted to do a, uh, what do you call that? Uh, what is that medical uh, autopsy to see if it was viral or bacterial? And we we're like, no, we're, maybe we should have done it for the sake of medicine. But um, we, just, we just trusted that it was, it was God's will. And I can't give you all the answers to that situation and to your situations of why God in his loving kindness and his sovereignty would allow you and bring you to a place where you're experiencing testing and even trials in your life. 
Because if I could, then you know what you should do? You should bow down before me and worship me if I could explain to you all the manifold mysteries and perplexities of our God, right? But that's not the case, and that's a good thing. Because if God were that, if he was a step for God that who did whatever we wanted, and if, if he was shaped in our image, he would not be worth worshiping and devoting yourselves to and following hard after. But we don't serve a God who's our genie that we beckon. He's not our servant. He's our Lord and master. And his ways are above our ways. And his thoughts are way above our thoughts. But still, we struggled. We struggled. And I, I started isolating myself with, again, you know, with, with regards to community. We were going to a church. This was 20 years ago. This is 2003. Uh, we just came out of a shutdown, right? And I, it's, this is wonderful. You know, let's, let's be careful. But let's also not fear at the same time. But I got really paranoid about, like, just being in crowded places and exposing my daughter Madeline to germs and whatnot. Um, I, I, this is kind of gross, but I went from being a guy who barely washed his hands. <laughs> I know it's gross. But to being a guy who became just almost a germ freak, and I still have my Purell here in my pocket, right? I carry it around everywhere I go. But it, it got to the point where I was afraid, and it was not good for my wife because she wasn't as bad as me in this realm, that I was afraid to be around people. I was afraid to let Madeline be carried by other people in our church, and there were college students and graduate students and you know, newcomers and people that we loved who are our church members. And um, it, it just got to the place where I was avoiding people, avoiding meetings, avoiding gatherings, and um, I was not trusting. I was not trusting the Lord. Um, and so my community of faith helped me rehearse the gospel truths in my life. They helped me remember that the God with whom Naomi was rejoicing in the heavens, right? That same God desired for me to grow, to move forward in faith, to be held fast not by any of my strength, but by his strength, the strength of his character. And so they loved us tenderly. They gave us food and fed us and embraced us and hugged us, but they also loved us tough. I remember my, my worship, my, my uh, men's ministry leader, his brother June, he was, uh, I'm sorry I'm going long on this illustration, but he was um, preparing, he had taken that week off, I remember, to prepare for his medical exams. He'd failed it twice, and so he took the week off, and this happens, right? Ministry, just life just happens. He stops studying for his medical exam, and he spends the next two or three days with us in the hospital. It was crazy. It was that kind of love. But with that kind of love, he was able to love me in those tender, supportive ways, but also speak into my life in a tough way where he was like, you are not trusting God. You're not remembering the gospel, and you're living in fear, and you need to repent. And I was like, who the heck are you to tell me this? You didn't lose your kid. And then he came back. He's like, yeah, but God did. God sent his son to save you. And it's his sovereignty over salvation. Like before then, I wasn't a sovereignty of God over salvation guy either, right? I, I thought that, hey, you know, and I do believe in repentance. I do believe in faith and trusting. It's a very, you know, active faith. We, we repent, we believe, we trust. But overarching, the overarching kind of work is, is the blood, the death, the resurrection, 
God is sovereign over everything in this universe, including salvation. For some reason, I didn't think it was including salvation, but God gave me the answers of why he's sovereign over all things. Um, and so we had not only his word with which to rehearse the gospel, not only on our knees, hugging it out, husband and wife, um, just loving each other, and, and God was very gracious in our marriage as well, but we had our community faith helping us rehearse the gospel that strengthened us, that encouraged us to continue moving forward in faith. That's what Abraham experienced, a rehearsal of the gospel as he was making that three-day journey up the Mount of Moriah. Um, it was really, it was a hard time, but it was a time where God saved people in our church as they saw, by our love, the world will know that you are my disciples. And it was just an, an incredible, ultimately a, a sanctifying, edifying time, if I can call it that, as we lost our daughter. And lastly, the God who points forward and back. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. We don't see it here. This is, you know, uh, early in salvation history, right? Like um, if you read the storyline of the Bible, you see a creation, fall, redemption, restoration, right? It's all over the place in, in, in all of scriptures. Basically, Jesus is everywhere. And in this passage, for those of you who are, you know, have been in the church or who've studied the Bible, who've been Christians for some time, you know that Jesus is all over the place in this Genesis 22 passage. But what about for Abraham and Sarah and Isaac? They didn't see the, the finished, completed work. It, it, it hadn't come to fruition. And that's where God, and it's just incredible, was pointing forward for them. He was pointing forward to the true son, not only the second Adam, but the second Isaac, that he would send centuries, centuries down the line, about a thousand years, the true Lamb of God who would take away the sins of those who repented and believed. He would send the Jesus who would actually be the substitute for not only Isaac, but for Abraham, for Sarah, and for all those who are the redeemed, for all of God's people. This is a passage that points people like Abraham forward but also points us back 2,000 years ago. And it's just very appropriate for us to be reminded of this during this Lenten season of the Jesus who came because he was not withheld by his Father. God sent his Son, his only Son, to be that sacrifice. And if you read in Hebrews 11 and 12, in chapter 11, you get like this litany of uh, a list of the heroes of the faith. And of course, Abraham is listed as one of the heroes. And, and what, what, what the Bible says of Abraham, it says, By faith, Abraham obeyed that he was called to go to a place that he, that he was to receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. And then later on, verse 17, that was verse 8 in Hebrews 11, it says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac 
And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So God was true to his promises that resulted in, centuries later, the true Isaac, the true substitute, the true Lamb of God that resulted in that true Lamb of God coming out of the lineage of Abraham and Isaac. And so in Hebrews 12, what do we read? Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the, faith, the race that is set before us, looking to who? Sure, look to Abraham. Look to Paul. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. Look to one another, because there are some brothers and sisters in the faith who are models, who are exemplary in their walk, in their witness, in, in, in whatever gifts, the cultivation, cultivation and the using of the gifts that God has provided you, the resources. Look to each other. But what does Hebrews say? The author of Hebrews says, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This Jesus is the one that Abraham looked forward to, and this is the one that we look back to. He is the one through whom we have obtained eternal life that begins here and now, this side of heaven. He is the one through which our salvation has been worked out. He is the one. You know, God in Genesis 15 counted it, counted it righteous, counted Abraham righteous, right? We hear about it in Romans. We hear about it here in Hebrews. This is the scandal of the gospel, and this is the, the beauty of the gospel. Abraham was a man who failed tests, you know, flying, you know, just aced them. He, he, he failed tests miserably. He passed tests, you know, just remarkably just well. Regardless of where he was, passing or failing, he was counted as righteous by God. That's the gospel. It wasn't based upon his works. It wasn't based upon his merit. It wasn't based upon his righteousness. It's based upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the perfect substitutionary atoning sacrifice that Abraham was credited righteousness. And it wasn't a righteousness that just absolved him from his sin. You know, the whole kind of tabula rasa, clean slate, and now you can either go do good or do bad and you know, mark up your life, that clean slate. No, it was righteousness, an alien righteousness, a foreign righteousness that he was given, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And yet he looked forward to that faith. I want to finish with this kind of picture for you. And don't let your mind's eye wander too far because this is, you know, this is just for dramatic, perhaps. But I think hopefully, you know, um, it'll help you see a powerful picture of the gospel here. Um, I can imagine um, perhaps Abraham looking down from the heavens a thousand years after his death, uh, the time of Jesus, uh, him seeing like, you know, um, the angel go to Mary and proclaim to her that she's going to have this miracle child. She's going to be, she's going to conceive, you know, a virgin. And Abraham thinking, hmm, miracle boy. It's coincidental. <laughs> and then him seeing Jesus live this incredible, powerful life. 
healing the lame, um, you know, touching um, the, the dirty, like defiled, the fringe people of society, having a special heart for them. He didn't not, he didn't not have a heart for the rich and the poor and the middle class and so on and so forth, but he had a, I, I feel like from what the scriptures show us, he had a special heart for the people on the fringes, loving, loving, healing, serving, washing the feet of all 12, not just the 11. And then him being tried and found guilty by a kangaroo court of, of wrongs that he did not commit. And then being condemned to die, guess what? On a cross. And so he's seeing this play out from heaven and wondering, this is, this is completely wrong and wow, what's happening here? And then he sees Jesus taking up wood on his, on his back and making that way, make his way, making his way up Mount Calvary. And just so you know, Mount Calvary, according to biblical archaeologists, is just a stone's throw away from Mount Moriah. And Mount Moriah is located right outside. It might even be in Jerusalem. It was where Solomon erected the temple. He's thinking, what is happening here? That, Jesus is carrying the wood up the mountain. That's Moriah. And, and oh my goodness, like, God, your, your son He's submitting himself to the ridicule and the persecution and the mockery and, and the nails through his hands or his wrists and his, his feet. And the Old Testament clearly says, cursed is a man who hangs on a tree and your son is being cursed. And it all just comes back to him. And perhaps Isaac is sitting next to him and they're both looking at each other like wide-eyed. Like, now we get it. It wasn't just that ram that was caught in the thicket that took my place. It's the Jesus, the true Lamb of God, that took my place, Dad, in your place, my son. That's what the gospel is all about. And I hope and I pray that just reading and learning a little bit more about this test and how the grace of God wasn't contingent upon the failure or the passing of this test, but nevertheless it was how God grew Abraham and made him more like himself and exposed more of his heart to Abraham. It was both and. And I pray that this word will bring you some encouragement as you go from this place. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this incredible account. Lord, we thank you for the drama of your word. Um, it's, it's at times just shocking. It's unsettling. But most of all, it's just uh, truthful even scandalous account of a God who just pursues sinners like us, a God who uh, substitutes um, the only acceptable, perfect, blameless, undefiled, precious lamb, your son, Jesus. Lord, we thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Uh, words can't express enough um, our gratitude, but um, we thank you, Lord, that we can devote ourselves to you, that we can worship to you even today, as we hear about um, this gospel story um, portrayed through the life um, and the journeys of Abraham and Isaac and Sarah. Father, I don't know what's going on um, in detail uh, in the lives of these people, but I know you do, and I know that you can do your work in renewing minds, in um, piercing hearts and healing and, and restoring um, hearts, Lord. You can do that. You, only you can save and sanctify. And so that's what I ask you to do. 
Uh, thank you for this time together, and um, we love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. You can email us at info at newhopeny.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for those outlets is New Hope NYC. Our website is www.newhopeny.org. If you are in the New York City area, we have 4 p.m. worship gatherings on Sundays at 164-2 Gothels Avenue in Jamaica, Queens. We're praying for you, and we hope to see you soon.